Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, I've got something different planned for you guys. I know that we, that last episode I said we'd talk more about the ongoing war in Ukraine and analyze that as it approaches its one-year anniversary. I think I'm going to move that to the next episode as it will be the one-year anniversary, and I don't think I have quite enough content to fill three episodes anyway. Fortunately for us, we're going to be doing something which I am pretty excited about today, and that is something I've been wanting to do on the show for a while, which is analyze a piece of media, whether that's a movie, TV show, video game, music, what have you, and break apart its politics and its philosophy. And today I have got an excellent piece of media to show you guys. I am usually not a movie person, to be quite honest. I don't watch a lot of movies. I prefer TV shows and other things. So it's pretty rare when I see a movie and it really gets its hooks into me and I can't stop thinking about it. And that's what's really happened in today's episode. And the only way I feel like I can get its hooks out is to basically, you know, watch, watch me basically pull them out in front of you guys right here, right now. So yes, we will be talking about a movie. But before I begin, let me preface by saying this. This is... Let me preface by saying this is not a movie review. I am not a movie reviewer. We're not going to be talking about the acting, the cinematography, who the actors are, their backstories, or any of that crap. I'm specifically focused on the politics and the philosophy of the movie and what it's trying to say. So what are we going to be talking about today? We are going to be talking about the menu. And it's been a long time since I've seen a movie that has spoken to me on so many levels. And I can't wait to break down some of my thoughts for you guys. Of course, we will be doing some major spoilers for the movie. I would encourage you to watch this movie. Like I said, it really spoke to me. As someone who is a foodie, who enjoys food, who enjoys cooking and learning about the process of cooking. Definitely had a lot of interesting things to say to me on a personal level. I will say that I have never been more ashamed to know what a Paco jet is and how it functions than after watching this movie. But that being said, as someone who loves to analyze political and philosophical messages in just about any piece of media, it really spoke to me on that level too. Let me give you a very, very, very brief cliff notes on the movie. And then from there on, that will be it in terms of, you know, all the backstory I'm going to give you. We're going to jump right into the examination and jump right into the spoilers. So I will warn you before we get there, I know it kind of sucks to do maybe a, a, a episode on a newer piece of media that people haven't seen yet, but unfortunately, if you haven't seen the menu yet, I would highly recommend you go and watch it before you view this episode. Obviously, you don't have to, but it would probably help. So what is the menu? Well, it bills itself as sort of a horror, suspense, comedy type of movie. A lot of different elements that come together in what I think is a very interesting display. Essentially, what has happened is that you are following a set of characters who are going to a very fancy restaurant that's on a private island. It's this very well-known world-renowned chef's restaurant. He is known for kind of producing like the best of the best food. And only 12 people per night can go to this restaurant. And it costs something like $12,000 a person. So obviously the elite of the elite dining experiences meant for, you know, kind of the wealthy and powerful and for a very small subgroup of people. 
And anyway, all of the people who have been brought to this island have been chosen by the chef for a specific reason. And a lot of those reasons are revealed as the film goes on. There's, for example, some finance bros. There's a food critic. There's a wealthy patron. All of these people have been brought to the island and to the restaurant that night for a specific purpose, which gets revealed throughout the course of the movie. So that's it in terms of background. I'm going to be jumping in very, very quickly where we're going to talk about the character in this movie that I think represents the overwhelming majority of people and how they are very clearly victimized by the capitalist system as a whole. So when it comes to your spoilers, this is your warning. I'm going to count down from three and it'll be spoilers ahead. So three, two, one, you've been warned. So let's talk about the character who represents the overwhelming majority of people. Well, in my opinion, that is none other than Jeremy Ludden. And unfortunately, Jeremy doesn't get a lot of screen time in the movie, but the screen time he does have is very impactful. So Jeremy is a sous chef underneath the great Julian Slovak, who is the head chef of the restaurant, the main antagonist of the film. And... Jeremy wrote him a very heartfelt letter asking to come and work for this great chef. He basically dropped everything to go and work with him. He's obviously got a lot of drive. He's got a lot of culinary talent. He's got a lot of creative talent. But for all of that, unfortunately, he will never actually really realize the benefit of all of his talents and all of his creativity. Because one of the greatest casualties of the capitalist system is our creativity as a whole as art is continually watered down and commodified and one of the byproducts of that is that it makes it extremely difficult to make a living in our current system through a creative vocation in order to make a real living you generally speaking have to be at the top of the top like julian and if you're not well you're essentially doomed to one of two propositions and the reason I say that Jeremy is like all of us is because I really do believe that all of us have at least a little bit of a creative outlet that they would just like to let out into the world. Some people are extremely creative. Some people are extremely creative and talented, and that's how they become the top of the top artists in their field. But all of us, I think, do have at least some creative fire within us burning away that wants to get out. And for those of us that have a very large fire, unfortunately, our system doesn't offer us a lot of options. And, you know, for me personally, I would, I would consider myself to be one of those people. So what happens if you're a guy like Jeremy and are extremely talented, but just don't have that X factor to make it to the very top of, of the culinary food chain, if you will. And I've actually, I've seen a lot of people talk about this character I think they really get it wrong. They get it wrong in the sense that they think that he, you know, has all this anger and turmoil and eventually, spoiler alert, wants to take his own life because he just can't be at the same level as the chef. I don't think that that's it at all. It's the fact that he's had to sacrifice so much just to, just to try and make it with his personal passion. But at the end of the day, despite sacrificing so much, he still has so little to show for it. So bringing us back to what are your two options if you're not the top of the top type of creative person. And this just doesn't go for chefs. This goes for people who 
want to make movies, people who are writers, people who are YouTubers, whatever else. Generally speaking, those people, unless you're at the top of your field, it becomes extremely difficult to get by. So you're forced into one of two options. The first one is what Jeremy does, which is essentially you have to drop everything for just a hope, just a shred of a chance that you'll achieve your dream. And that's clearly what he's done. It stands to reason that he doesn't have any family. He doesn't really have any kids or any friends or life outside of his little island culinary world. And that is because it's said at the start of the movie that all of the kitchen staff live on the island and it doesn't seem like they have the best accommodations. It looks like they live in a little barracks, just single beds. There's no personal items to be seen. It's not mentioned how much these people get paid. But even if they do get paid a fair salary, it's not like they can actually use the fruits of their labor because they're stuck on this island. You can't really go, you know, go to the mall to hang out. You can't go see a movie. You can't go to a coffee shop or whatever. <laughs> You're stuck on this little island. It's a not exactly an easy process. So despite the fact that Jeremy has maybe superior culinary skills to 99.9999999% of the population, he doesn't actually get to see the benefit of that. And he, like a lot of people who want to make a living through their creative vocation, end up sacrificing and working long hours for little pay. At the end of the day, they still, a lot of times, don't make it. And that is obviously a catalyst for hopelessness, despair, and potentially taking your own life. So what is the other option that people have? And this is what I would say is what most people have adopted, probably what I have adopted, which is essentially that you go for another vocation, which you're not necessarily passionate about, but is much more stable, pay the bills, and hopefully you'll be able to get by that way. But by doing that, you almost have to sacrifice a part of yourself. You have to sacrifice a part of your passion just to have a stable life. And I think that this is a pretty crappy trade-off for a lot of people and again, causes a lot of heartbreak and a lot of despair, which ends in a very dramatic fashion for Jeremy with him publicly in front of everybody taking his own life. And part of this, I do think, is to send the message that you are the people in front of him. You are the people causing this despair. You are the people that is causing me to want to take my life because, and we'll be getting into this, because this kind of elite of the elite have really sucked out joy and love and mystery of the culinary field. And when you're serving to people who are used to essentially the best of the best experiences, you are not going to be able to satisfy them. And that probably leads to a pretty big hole in yourself, pretty big emotional hole. And for some people, they can't find a way to fill it. And it ends up, and they end up living a very empty life. But the chef says that Jeremy has pretty much made a mess of his life trying to pursue his dream. And that's really tragic to me. Why don't we ever stop and ask ourselves, why do we have to sacrifice everything just for the chance of pursuing our dreams? Why are we happy with a society that does that to us, that forces us into basically a lifetime of empty banality just to be stable or to scratch and struggle to reach our dreams? It seems like a pretty bum deal to me. Anyway, that is the plight of Jeremy. 
And that's how I think he represents most of us at large, more so than any other character in the movie. But even if you make it to the top, even if you are the best of the best, like the main character, like Julian Slowick, still your vision, your work, your reason to be is compromised and diluted by the capitalist system at large. And now let's, now let's explore that for a bit. So let's talk about our good friend Julian. Let's talk about what he represents, because obviously he doesn't represent us all. You know, we all can't be masterclass chefs as much as I would like to be, and I'm sure many of you would like to be. Unfortunately, we just don't all have that talent or capability. However, some of us do. And when we do have that talent or capability, it's interesting. And, you know, when we do become that elite in our field, I think it's very interesting that the capitalist system will basically try and co-op that elite and make sure that it only works for the top 1% and the top echelon of society, which is what has really happened to Julian here. He has worked so hard at his craft and become so well-renowned that essentially the only people who can now afford to eat his food are the best of the best. And you'd think that that would be a good thing, right? To reach that upper echelon and make sure that your food is only being served to, you know, the quote, elite of society. But the thing is, when you get to that point, what these people want at the top of society is not the same as what people want at the lower echelons. And because of that, your craft and what you serve and what you and the people that you're dealing with are going to change remarkably. And that was a change that I don't think Julian was expecting or ready for. And the change that happens to him, he can obviously, he's obviously marked out in his mind and he thinks about because it happened when he first got his first upscale restaurant, which was enabled by the food critic who gave him an excellent review. And then that breaks him into the upper echelon. And from there, you can see his craft changing to serve the best of the best. Because in his early days, it was clear that for Julian, cooking was about cooking great, delicious food that people would enjoy. And to me, that is still the epitome of cooking, not taking the fanciest ingredients and turning it into the most pretentious sounding dish that you possibly can. The fact of the matter is that I think the true art of cooking is taking something that is extremely simple, extremely basic, and doing it to a level that is so far beyond what most people could do that people are like, wow, how did you take this, this, this basic dish and really elevate it? That is what, to me, true artistry in cooking is. And the movie is very obvious about this change, right? Because there's a scene where Margot, one of the main characters, breaks into the chef's his personal room, looks through some of his most impactful memories. And there's one where he has framed his first review from that food critic, Lillian Bloom. He's framed it, put it in his room. And obviously this is important to him, but you can see that he looks pretty dour in this picture. He's not smiling. He doesn't seem happy to have achieved this. But the only time he is happy is in this photo here, which is his employee of the month for Hamburger Howie's, 
where you can see he's grinning from ear to ear, flipping a burger. And that is definitely one of the fundamental messages of the movie. And that's exemplified at the end of the movie when Margot asks for something simple. She asks for a cheeseburger. And during the time when the chef is creating this cheeseburger, you can see that he's happy. He's actually genuinely smiling. He's enjoying himself. Just making this simple food that most people, I'm assuming, would enjoy. Just making this simple dish. The cheeseburger, you can watch me make a smash burger. It's just two ground ground beef balls smashed down with some onions, salt, and pepper, and cheese. You know, you're good to go. And when you take that simple framework and elevate it to something complex and beautiful, that to me, again, is, is, is the true element and the true artistry of cooking. And that is something that, fortunately, Julian realizes only in his final moments. And even if he were to have, like a lot of people, don't like how the movie ended, they feel like with this ending scene that there might have been some sort of redemption or something like that. Personally, I thought that would have been very lame if they went with that ending. But it's obvious that he is too far gone and is too angry for what he has done, for not just the fact that he has kind of become himself a working class trader, right? It's pretty clear that he comes from a very working class background. He talks about his family struggles in the movie. He talks about his working class upbringing. And these snooty rich bastards can't connect with that at all. They just think it's, you know, it's just, oh, it's a funny little game to them. But anyway, he has elevated himself to the point where the top 1% are the only ones who can actually enjoy his food. And the fact of the matter is, because these people are so used to extravagant experiences, they don't appreciate or understand it at all. Whereas someone like Margot, who does not belong to the upper echelon, is understanding that his food that he's serving, this pretentious food, isn't really artistry. And obviously, when you price your food and your work gets to a point where only his unsatiated people can only enjoy it, you miss out on everybody who would love to have a piece of your work. You know, there are probably countless people out there who, like how many of you guys out there would just love to have a smash burger made by Gordon Ramsay? You know, right here. But the fact of the matter is, I don't have a crap ton of money sitting around that I could hire Gordon Ramsay to co-order my house and make a smash burger for me. Just don't have that kind of disposable income. Have that kind of disposable income where I can spend $12,000, go to a private island and have a four-course meal, sorry, $1,200, and have a four-course meal prepared to me by one of the most world-renowned chefs. Just don't have that kind of dough lying around. And unfortunately, and I'm, I'm going to assume that most of you guys listening to this video are in that same boat, you don't have that kind of disposable income, he's essentially locked you out of his dining experience. He's locked you out. And I think... This is something that Julian feels profoundly guilty for, locking out the people who could really enjoy and appreciate the experience that he's creating with his food. And the people that he's actually serving, this experience to them is mundane. This experience to them is actually boring. And to him, there is no greater insult than to have his work bore so many people and, of course, the people who would love it can't afford it. But to be fair, when Julian started this endeavor, when he started this private restaurant, I don't think that that's what he thought would happen. 
What I think he thought would really happen is that this investor, his angel investor, would give him his money that he could use to help realize his own culinary artistic vision, that he thought that he would finally have the freedom to truly realize what he wants and truly realize his vision. Unfortunately for him, that wasn't what the investor had in mind. That wasn't what his angel investor cared about. To be quite frank, his angel investor couldn't have given two shits about realizing Julian's artistic vision. The investor cared about one thing, that is making his money back off of his investment, which is Julian in this case. And this obviously upset Julian to no end, not being able to have the true artistic freedom that he had been craving because he mentions that the investor would come in and would meddle with his menu and ask for substitutions and obviously compromise his artistic vision. And that is one of the most poignant messages of the movie, I think, which is that even if we do reach the top of our field, the top of our creative fields, and become true artists and masters in our craft, our vision and our achievements will still be compromised and muddled by capitalism. Capitalism will still want to defile them because ultimately it's about making a dollar. It's not about achieving artistic purity. And the question I have for you guys, and I'm curious to see what you will say, is that so long as we live in a system where the artist's vision can never truly reign overall, the artist's vision will always have to be subservient and will always have to compromise to the almighty dollar. Can the artist truly actually ever achieve their vision in that system? Or will it always be corrupted? Personally, I'm not sure the artist can ever actually achieve their vision in this system. So that is the tragedy of the chef, at least, is that even at the top of the top, he never actually got to exercise his true artistic vision, even when he thought he finally made it and finally had the freedom that he could, you know, actually bring onto the world what he had always wanted. He couldn't do it because his investor was still always sullying his vision. Now, before we kind of end off the major themes of the movie, I can't believe I've already rambled on for quite, <laughs> quite a bit longer than I thought I would about this particular movie, but I do want to touch on a couple more characters and how they represent and what they represent in our current society at large. That, of course, we have our main character, Margot slash Aaron, who was not originally supposed to be at this dinner. And she's effectively a lady of the night, is what I believe the kids use these days and she herself i think has a very interesting role to represent in this in this whole display first off is i think that what she represents and to a lesser extent the chef in and of itself is this idea and you know to an extent i think it is probably justified because at the end of the day when it comes to acts of service they all say that we live in a service-based economy these days. I personally think that an act of service born out of love for another human being 
is probably the most pure and genuine way you can show your admiration and affection for them. And I also think that it stands to reason in the opposite manner that an act of service born of profit is looked down on and seen as something unclean. And, you know, this obviously makes sense because to do an act of service for somebody, usually it's, again, it's something that you would only do for someone that you really love and care about. When it comes to, for example, cooking, I am assuming that for the vast majority of people out there that I'm sure there have been some restaurant meals that you've had in your life that have eclipsed your mother's home cooking, your mother's or in, you know, my daughter's case or father's home cooking is going to always hold that special place in your mind. It's always going to hold that special place above all because it was made with that extreme love and care that only your parent could put into something like that for you. And even if you go to a restaurant and you have that really high class meal, chances are still not exactly going to hold up to that image you have in your head of your mother's cooking. And I think it's also something when it comes to what Aaron does, what Margot does when we talk about sex work, which is in my opinion, is absolutely real work and should be legalized yesterday because, you know, you want to talk about incels and everything like that. I think if you were to make sex work illegal and destigmatized, we could do a lot of work into solving the incel problem, but you know, that that's for another conversation. That's for another day. But the way we act and the way we think about sex work, especially in its service to context, is that obviously a sexual act done from one person to another out of love is one of the most pure and beautiful things that we can think of when it comes to one human showing affection for another. But when it comes to a sexual act come out of profit, there are a few things that are more disgusting to us in our eyes. But the thing about Margot is, and she claims that she used to love her work. So where does that leave us when you have someone who loves their work and loves to provide services for other people. That is part of what fulfills them. And that I think is kind of when you get, and that is when you get into the realm of real, real artistry, right? When you have that intersection of love and work, but a lot of the times, especially when you're dealing with crappy customers, that love for your service can be diminished. And that is something that has happened to Margot, which she explicitly states in the movie that she used to like providing her services. And over time, through bad customers and bad experiences, she no longer feels that love. And the chef obviously has a similar experience. And I think that's part of what binds them together and attracts them to one another. And this relationship between the service provider and the consumer is kind of touched on the movie. And I really want to talk about it a little bit more because I think it's almost toxic relationship, especially in our culture and in our society. And it kind of leads to this like really like Jekyll and Hyde dynamic between everybody, because if you're a service worker and, and most people and more and more people are in our society, you're basically expected that the customer can do no wrong. The customer can shit on you, treat you like garbage, yell at you, insult you, demean you, belittle you. And there's nothing you can do. Because the customer is always right, 
you just have to sit there and take it. There's really nothing you can do unless you want to run the risk of losing your job. But here's the thing. You're not going to be the service worker forever when you're off your job and you are now the one consuming the services. Essentially, now you are the one who is always right. And now you're the one who gets to demand and you're the one that gets to bully and demean and belittle. I think that's what ends up happening to a lot of people that they get bitter from how they are treated as a service worker in our current society. And then when they go out and actually consume services from other people, that bitterness then rubs off in the way they too treat another service worker and it kind of cascades from there in this kind of stream of bullshit. And what's interesting is that in a lot of European countries, you don't really hear and see about that burnout for service workers, because especially in a country like Germany, the service worker has a lot more bone and the employer is a lot more willing to go to bat for their employee than they are here. For example, you will find in a lot of circumstances that services in a country like Germany, the service workers will not be as accommodating. And when you ask for something, guess what? You might be told no. You might be told no, we can't do that for you. And because of that, I think it means that they have a lot less pressure. They could push back against bad customers. They just don't have to sit there and take it. And I think that allows service workers to be a lot less constantly depressed about their job. So I think that this movie definitely does a very good job in satirizing and examining the toxic relationship between the service worker and the consumer in our society. And to be fair, there's only one place that I've ever seen where the customer is more well-regarded than in Western society, and that is in Japan, right? The famous saying in Japan is, it's not the customer is always right, it's the customer is God. The customer is literally God. And when I was there, one of the things I remember noticing very specifically is that all the fast food and service workers didn't seem like they wanted to blow their brains out. They actually seemed like they were relatively happy and content. And I think the reason for that is, is that yes, Japan is a very service-oriented culture and you are expected as a service worker to go above and beyond. But as a consumer, you are also going to be extremely polite and forthcoming as well. If there is an issue with your order in Japan, the Japanese person is going to you know, take it to the register and be like, excuse me, I'm really sorry to disturb you, but I think there might be a minor issue with my order. Could you please remedy this for me? I would really appreciate it. And then the service worker is going to be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. This is very embarrassing. I cannot believe this happened. We will remedy this for you right away. Please have a seat. I will take care of it for you type of thing, right? The interaction is going to be polite and seamless throughout. Whereas in America, someone screws up an order. What are the chances that the guy comes up to the till and is like, you mother effer, you stupid piece of crap. I can't believe you forgot to put ketchup in my fries. What are you, the dumbest human being on the planet? Blah, 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 blah. What are the chances that that happens to you as a service worker if you screw up somebody's order? I don't know, 50% at least type of thing. So let's move on to our boy Tyler, who is basically the toxic fanboy, the epitome of the toxic fanboy that will defend his master no matter what. Definitely represents the, you never want to meet your heroes type of refrain, because that definitely cost him a lot meeting his hero in this circumstance. He is one of the most ultimate frauds, and he also represents 
someone who is kind of like an archetype in our society, especially when you get to the points where you can be relatively upper class, have a lot more disposable income. He basically represents to me the essential, like the toxic consumer, right? All that he does is consume. He doesn't create anything. He doesn't offer anything of value. And we can see that when he actually tries to create something, when the chef says, get in the kitchen, you know, you're a cook. Now is your time to create. <laughs> now your time. Now is your time to make something, not just be an eater. And he can't do it. He can't do it. So despite the fact that he on surface understands the product that he's consuming, he at no point can actually replicate it and truly actually understand the depths of what it takes to make these things that he is so enamored with and makes the, make these dishes that he is so enamored with. And one of the things that, again, that Tyler really represents in our society is the kind of person who not a maker, they are a taker, they are a consumer, and they define themselves through their consumption choices, effectively. Tyler is defining himself by his choices to consume fine dining and his knowledge thereof. This is his basic entire definition as a human being. And this type of thinking goes so far beyond food, right? You'll see so many people out there that define their entire identities by what they consume. And that's one of the things that we talk about the toxic fandom, right? There's endless, endless lists of movies and TV shows and games that have toxic fandoms of these people who have basically defined themselves as a consumer of this medium. And that's it. That's all they are. They are a consumer of Rick and Morty. They're a consumer of League of Legends. They're a consumer of XYZ. And that's it. That's their identity. Tyler is a consumer of fine dining. And that's it. That's all he knows. And when people aren't as enthusiastic or as knowledgeable about that thing, particularly when they're on his turf, like in a fine dining scenario, he's going to be extremely toxic. Yeah, think of something like League of Legends, right? Someone who's defined their entire existence by being a League of Legends player. You come into their turf and try and play a League of Legends game with them. They're just going to treat you like you are the most disgusting pawn scum that has ever been, that has ever dragged itself out of the depths, right? They're just going to treat you like such trash. And again, that is something that I think really happens when you become a toxic consumer when you define yourself through your consumption. You get bitter and angry when people don't appreciate it at the same level that you do, or they're trying to, and they just don't seem to grasp it. There's nothing in the world that will set off a toxic consumer more than that. So there's only two last characters I'd really like to touch on and talk about before we end this examination. And these two characters are pretty similar in a lot of ways. First, you have or these two groups of characters. First, you have the finance bros, and they're very easy to rip apart. They're arrogant. They're shallow. They think that they own everything just because they have a lot of money and that they work for this important investor. And not only that, they don't actually produce anything of value in society. When it comes to what their jobs are, they are investors, and they don't actually do anything <laughs> like they don't actually give back to society they don't produce something 
that helps people and benefits people. And not only that, even if they weren't outright criminals, which they are, so the top of not being actual useful members of society, they are on top of that criminals and siphoning and leeching off the hardworking people of effectively everywhere. <laughs> like these kind of finance people have their like, tendrils and everything, They're sucking out whatever kind of money they can around the fringes. Obviously, you can tell that I'm a big, big fan of these type of people, but really not much to say here. Very, very simple archetype of the consumer and taker in society and the type of person who doesn't really offer any benefit. So lastly, in our rapid fire roundup, we have the food critic who is, again, another individual that doesn't actually produce anything valuable for society. However, the critic in theory should produce something valuable. But the only reason that this kind of person exists is because of our broken capitalist system. So in theory, that the value the critic provides should be in allowing the consumer the power to discern what is a product worth purchasing and consuming and what is not. And they are the gatekeepers, right? They get to consume the products en masse and decide which ones are the ones that are worth your time and money. If we transition to a system in which art is not necessarily created on the basis to be consumed by the masses, but rather to inspire and elevate the people around them and to usher in the artist's creative vision, then effectively would we need the role of a critic? I think that's a very interesting question. If we had a more socialist society where goods and services could be consumed on a much wider basis and not necessarily divided up by who has the appropriate amount of money and not, would we need the role of the critic? Would the role of the critic become obsolete? Because if you don't have to worry about wasting your time and money on consuming a product, what is the role of the critic? Does the critic become actually valuable or useful at all in our society and i would say no and you know, the thing is like critics in and of themselves are definitely becoming less and less valuable just as you have more and more people able to consume products and able to review them and be critical of them right we have more and more user reviews we have youtubers we have bloggers we have ordinary people who are out there consuming products and telling people about them on their own accord. So do we really need the professional consumer? I'm not sure if we do anymore, but that's definitely a question for a, another time. So I know that there are a bunch of other characters in the movie. Unfortunately, I don't think that they really have a lot of political or philosophical value to go over. Of course, we have the movie star, who I guess is a little bit interesting in the sense that the chef has so much disdain for him because he's an artist who's really phoned it in versus him who is an artist who is absolutely trying not <laughs> to phone it in, who is always trying to be at the top of his game every single time. And I think he really is angry that this guy has phoned it in just for money, just for convenience, just for ease, when that has not been the lifestyle he has chosen. And then, of course, you have the wealthy couple who are the regulars that they always come to this restaurant because it's in their mind the best of the best and this is what they can afford to do. But ultimately, when asked to name a single meal that they enjoyed, they cannot do it. 
<laughs> they cannot name a single meal that they had at the restaurant, obviously showing a great deal of disdain for the chef and his work. And one of the real interesting things that I felt when I was watching this movie, I thought it was kind of interesting analog for what the Buddhist version of hell is. So if you guys don't know what the Buddhist version of hell is, it's not like the Christian version. It's not a place that you go to after you die. In Buddhism, the version of hell that they envision is actually something that you can enter into in your everyday life. This is a place you could potentially find yourself while you're still alive. And the way you get to that Buddhist version of hell is by walking along the path of hedonism, by walking along the path of pleasure. And I think that we can see that this is what has happened to a lot of these patrons at the restaurant, that these are people who have their entire lives been walking the path of pleasure. And usually what happens, at least in the Buddhist circumstance, and I would say the chef has accelerated this process for them, but in the Buddhist philosophy, what happens when you walk that path of pleasure, when you walk that path of hedonism, that over time, you end up experiencing all the pleasures that you possibly can. All the pleasures that you might think that you've ever wanted to experience, if you just keep walking along that road, eventually you will experience them. And effectively, where does that leave you? Once you've explored the realm of pleasure, there can only be one realm for you to go after, and that is the realm of pain. And over time, eventually, this transition from pleasure to pain happens so gradually and so subtly that you don't even notice it and you don't even recognize it. You can even think of it like something like a slanesh type demon from Warhammer, right? Like Slanesh puts these ideas of pleasure in your head and you pursue the pleasure to your utmost gain. And before you know it, all of a sudden, Slanesh has got you in a trap and now your pleasure and pain are intermingled with one another. Or, you know, someone like Joffrey from Game of Thrones, right? He has experienced nothing but pleasure because he is a king, a king's son born into life of luxury, never had to suffer, never had to strive for anything. He's experienced nothing but pleasure his entire life. And obviously, by the time he becomes a teenager, this leaves the realm of pain as the only option open to him. And we can see that he explores it jubilantly in the course of both the book and the TV show. So I think that that is kind of interesting. Basically, the chef is, is speeding up that process of them going to hell. <laughs> it's speeding up the process of them walking along the path of pleasure and preventing them necessarily from going any deeper into that path of pain. Anyway, that's all I have to say on that particular note. And I think that's going to really bring me to the end of what I wanted to say on this particular movie. If you guys enjoyed this kind of talk, I'm happy to talk about more. If you didn't enjoy it, well, that's fine too. It may not happen again. Like I said, there was just something about this movie that really spoke to me and made me want to talk about it so I can buy these brain worms. Before I end this analysis, I, I want to end with a quote that is related to this and something that has really helped me in my personal life and when it comes to my own kind of creative pursuits. This actually comes from a very famous food YouTuber. I don't know if you guys know Chef John. He runs Food Wishes very famous food channel here on YouTube. But he said something once in one of his videos that really always stuck with me. And he said that 
One of the things I always tell my students and aspiring chefs is that you should always be happy with your dish, but never satisfied. And that is not just the way I look at my own cooking, but obviously with these videos as well, is that I can make sure that I'm happy with the product, but at the end of the day, to not be satisfied. So I'm always pushing myself to try and get just a little bit better next time. Every video I want to be just a little bit better than the last one. Every time I make something, I want to be just a little bit better than the last time I made it. So always trying to think of that next level. And that to me is how I try and balance both the pleasure of creation and also that kind of drive to always be doing something better and always be perfecting your craft. So with that, I do want to jump into a couple of brief current events topics. We'll end off the show. Don't think we're going to necessarily do a feel-good story today. Don't have one for you guys, but I do want to talk about two current event stories that have been happening, and then we'll end the show. Very briefly, I want to touch on Nikki Haley announcing that she's going to run for the Republican nomination in 2024. Obviously, this happened fairly recently. It's not a very big deal. We're not going to be spending more than a couple minutes talking about this. The only thing I do want to mention about this in particular is, one, she's she's not going to win. Like, let's be real, not going to win. Actually, in her credit, if she were actually able to make it to a general election, I think she'd do pretty well. I think she'd have a real shot. Like, if she were actually to go up against Joe Biden, I think she'd have a real shot at winning. But she's never going to make it to the general election. She's never going to make it out of the Republican primary. She's going to get toasted and roasted by the Republican base. I don't think she's going to make it very far. But that being said, if Trump has smart political instincts, which I still think the jury is out on that one, he is the kind of guy that sometimes I'll be like, holy crap, that is actually a really smart move. And then two days later, I'll be like, you are the dumbest human being that's ever existed. What are you doing? Type of thing. So he's just, he's very inconsistent. <laughs> well, we'll say that incredibly inconsistent with his political machinations, at least with his self-serving political machinations. Trump did come out already hard against her with a pretty funny, pretty funny opening salvo, basically saying she's a hypocrite because she said she would never run so long as Trump is running. And then he's like, basically, you're not going to get anything close. Maybe you'll get 5% and that would be good for you type of thing. But that being said, I don't think Trump wants to go too hard on her because the more people that enter this GOP primary, the higher his chances of winning will be. We are heating up. Now we are in 2023. We are heading to 2024, only one year away, but it feels like one year away from the 2024 election. So it's coming. It's coming quick and it's heating up fast. But the main thing is we still don't have anything from DeSantis, who is the real other candidate people are watching, but having another opponent in the ring, and there are almost certainly going to be more now, with her announcing, we're probably going to see quite a few others put their hats into the ring. And this is good news for Trump because he has such a solid grasp on, you know, depending on who you ask, could be anywhere between 20 to 30% of the GOP base. He's got a very firm grasp on his cohort of fans and followers who are simply just never going to abandon him and will vote for Trump no matter what. And this gives him a huge advantage, especially if you're facing against a number of people who could split the vote. If you're talking about a Trump versus DeSantis one-on-one -on -one type of scenario, DeSantis has a better shot because you can coalesce the anti-establishment vote or the anti-Trump vote and uh, coalesce that and go from there. 
because while there are more people who dislike Trump than like him, the people who like him really do like him and they actually turn up to vote, right? That's the thing. They turn up and they vote. When I heard she was announcing, I'm like, well, good news for Donald Trump. I'm sure he's happy about this. I'm sure he's happy about hearing this. And we probably won't talk anything more about Nikki Haley until the actual debates or she says or does something incredibly stupid and then we can all laugh at her. So the last thing I want to talk about for the show today is I want to talk a little bit about these Chinese spy balloons. Super random story. As we're talking, I believe we've shot down four of them. That's combined the United States and Canada. Although the ones that flew over Canada, the United States scrambled their jets and shot down because for some extremely bizarre and unknown reason, we have almost no Canadian Air Force bases in our Northern Territories, which can you believe that? Isn't that ridiculous that we have almost no Canadian air presence up in our Northern Territories? Anyway, so that's why the states had to shoot her down. In any case, it's really weird. Like I've been seeing like some conservative commentary about this, like that the Joe Biden did the wrong thing, that he didn't shoot it down fast enough and that kind of stuff. And that's really the one thing I want to talk about today because I always felt, thought that, that was very strange. And it seems like the, the, these people who are making these comments don't really understand what the American military was doing in this circumstance and what their actual capabilities are. So when we talked about this Chinese balloon or whatever, as soon as it comes into American airspace, like they are examining it from every single angle, right? They're making 3D renders. They're reading its transmissions. They're seeing what its range is. They're reading its admissions. They're watching its trajectory. They are just taking in so much information about this thing. Like everybody thinks that this Chinese survival was getting the information from the United States saying it's China. I really do think that the United States actually found more information about China than vice versa through this exercise. And the main thing is because we about these balloons that they have captured that their actual spying capabilities were not that sophisticated, that they weren't any more sophisticated than what a normal sort of satellite could do and the type of imagery that a satellite could actually take of potential military targets and the word on the street, quote unquote, from most American intelligence agencies is that these balloons and the spy apparatuses were trying to gain information about America's nuclear arsenal, trying to gain information about what type of materials the missiles were made of and stuff like that, what type of materials the silos are made of, how they're being housed, all that good stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that as soon as one of these balloons comes near a classified military area, the Americans just shut the files down. They just close the doors. They just close her up. And you can't get anything more than you would be able to get with a regular freaking spy satellite. So it, it was just a very weird, it's just a very bizarre move for the Chinese to do. I don't really know what they were thinking with these kind of balloons. I don't know what they were hoping to gain, but it just seems like such a, a blunder for the Chinese right now. They were trying to get on the phone with China and be like, hey bro, what's up? What's with all these balloons? The Chinese just stonewalled them. They're just like, nah, nah we're not gonna talk to you. Now you're not gonna get a response. And <laughs> because, you know, who, who knows why? Who knows why they're stonewalling him? But 
the most likely reason is that they were panicking, right? They're like, oh shit, they found our balloon. What the hell are we going to tell them? Oh, it's a weather balloon. There is a moment there where the Chinese aren't responding to the Americans, probably because they're freaking out, trying to get their story straight, trying to figure out what exactly they're going to tell the Americans. Yeah, I think that in this case, Biden did the right move just by basically letting it come across and letting it sail across. There's nothing that this spy balloon can really examine that the Chinese can't get their satellites anyway. And the fact of the matter is, if you blow it up over the U.S. mainland, you run the risk of debris falling into people's houses and, and killing people, even in rural middle America type of thing. Even if you were to shoot it down over one of these very sparsely populated areas, you can never minimize that risk to zero, essentially. You, there still would be a substantial risk that debris could fall, maybe land on a truck on the road, you know, land in a cabin in the woods and end up killing somebody and talk about a whole nother disaster, right? <laughs> the Republicans have been complaining about how Joe Biden handled this balloon. Imagine if they have blown it up and it ends up killing some poor innocent farmer. The debris ends up killing some poor innocent farmer, right? You can imagine the freak out that would be happening there. So they just blew near the coast of South Carolina. This happens to be an area where the water is relatively shallow. And as we can see here from this new story, that teams that uh, teams are already trying to retrieve debris from these Chinese balloons. And of course, the Americans are going to take it back. They're going to study it. They're going to reverse engineer it. And they're going to see exactly what kind of capabilities these balloons had. And they're going to be doing the same thing with all the other balloons which have been shot down. Right now, I know here in Canada, they are making serious efforts to try and find the debris of the balloon that was shot down over the Yukon. I'm sure that they're dredging the lakes, the, the depths of the of Lake Huron, where the other one was shot down. The only one that I think that they're not going to be able to recover is the one off the coast of northern Alaska, because those waters are notoriously choppy. They're difficult. They're also deep. So it's going to be difficult to, to actually get the, the debris out of there and examine it. So anyway, just to rant, just to talk about this, because a lot of people are talking about it, and I think a lot of people are really not understanding that this is a win for the United States by and large. This is a loss for China. And uh, the, like, yeah, I, again, I don't know what the hell Chinese espionage corps was thinking with these balloons, but all that they're going to do is just tank America-Chinese relations down further. And we're already talking about a point in our lives. Like, th like right now, in my life, American-Chinese relations are probably the lowest they've ever been in my entire lifetime. And before that, the only time I can think that they were even lower was basically the 1950s when the People's Republic of China was just initially founded. The Cold War was just breaking up, or the Cold War was just kicking off. And obviously, the United States was not too enthused about relations with another communist power. Those are probably the only other time that American-Chinese relationships have been lower than they are now. And with these balloons, there's obviously not a chance that they're going to warm anytime soon. And with that, we will come to the end of our show. I apologize for the delay on this one. Apologize for bringing it to you guys on a Monday rather than its usual Friday course. We're going to have another episode this Friday, so we will resume the Friday schedule. I have actually been playing with the notion of changing the, the day that this show comes out on changing it from Friday to maybe another day. But in the meantime, this episode will come out on Monday and then we'll have another episode out on Friday at usual time and then keep going from there. So 
with that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been The Comrade. Signing off for now. Till next time. You guys take care.